You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. This is the OHBM Neurosalience podcast. I'm Peter Banatini. And on this podcast, we chat with leaders in the field of brain imaging and we discuss topics uh, of interest, uh, research that they're doing, um, latest issues. And uh, this week, uh, we have Michael Breakspear. And this discussion was uh, wide ranging. It started out with uh, a discussion of Michael's motivations when he was younger and um, how he got into neural modeling and progress over the years in that. We talk a little bit about of his, his work in neural modeling. And, and interestingly, we discussed a little bit of the clinical translation aspect of, of neuroimaging in general. Uh, then we get into uh, a discussion about neuroimage because he's the editor-in-chief of neuroimage. And some of the changes that have occurred in neuroimage, uh, the big one was uh, becoming more open access and, uh, and you know, some of the issues of open access. Uh, we also talk about at the very end, um, kind of a crisis that's going on. Australian National University is shutting down their neuroscience program for, for funding reasons, um, for, for budgetary reasons. And, you know, we both talk about how, how we started out by talking about how this is probably a, or definitely um, not a solution that we would have come up with, even though we don't really, you know, obviously know all the, know all the details of the budget, but um, cutting a program is, is pretty drastic and especially neuroscience and especially, uh, and we get into a discussion about this, especially open uh, sort of discovery science. Uh, discovery science doesn't necessarily pay off in the short run, but it's always a, long-term uh, investment that pays off uh, pretty consistently. So cutting a, a discovery science sort of field is, is, is kind of short-sighted in that regard. And so we get into that discussion. Like I said, it's a wide-ranging uh, discussion, great discussion with uh, um, somebody who's a leader in the field in, in, in many areas. So enjoy, thank you. Dr. Michael Breakspear is a physicist and psychiatrist uh, and, a, and the leader of the Systems Neuroscience and Translational Neuroimaging Group at the Hunter Medical Research Institute at the University of New, Newcastle. He's also the editor-in-chief of the journal Neuroimage. Uh, his work in physics focuses on dynamic models of large-scale brain activity, toolbox development, and the detection of nonlinear dynamics and empirical data. His work in translational imaging encompasses healthy aging, dementia, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, with a focus on connectomics and uh, risk prediction. Uh, Michael grew up in Sydney and studied medicine, philosophy, and mathematics. Uh, he undertook uh, early career research training at the School of Physics at the University of Sydney before moving to the School of Psychiatry at UNSW at, uh, as a mid-career researcher. He formed a systems neuroscience group at the University of South Wales and Sydney in 2004, 
then moved to QIMR, Berghofer Medical Research Institute from uh, in 2009. And then he re finally re relocated to Newcastle in 2019 and established his system neuroscience group, the Newcastle SNG NUI, with aspirations to uh, integrate basic methods, bioinformatics, and clinical translation and, and with a unique uh, regional Australian character. Uh, their imaging center is in a beautiful bushland setting in the Awabaki, Awabakal, Awabaki County, Awabakal County. Uh, and uh, in addition to basic research uh, training, he's also completed training in psychiatry and uh, um, combines his uh, career with clinical sessions uh, in adult psychiatry. So Michael has an interest in recovery-focused treatment of mood disorders, psychosis, and addiction. Uh, and in the past, he's also uh, worked in prison mental health and inner city community psychiatry. He also did a stint uh, in, in California studying mathematics uh, uh, as well. So, uh, so he spent a little bit, about a year in the States uh, as well. He also has a passion for climate science. Uh, I always look forward to having a chat with him at, at brain mapping meetings. And he, you know, he's also really into surfing. As a matter of fact, he I'm interviewing him in the evening. He's, it's his morning. He just finished a surf, surf session this morning. So uh, looking forward to having a good, uh, a good chat. So thanks again for coming with Zoom. Thanks again for, for clicking on. Um, so, so just to begin. Um, okay, well, thanks very much, Peter. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. So just to start, so what motivated you to begin your passion for for modeling. I mean, what it seems that, you know, I always notice, and it's a really cool thing how you start so many of your talks with modeling astrophysics and and the power of of modeling. So, what actually motivated you to start this in the context of, of brain dynamics? Well, after school, I started doing medicine, and uh, when you're a junior medical student, you learn a lot of information, basically. And um, because I had a passion and an interest in mathematics, I wasn't getting my intellectual curiosity satisfied. And at that stage, you could also enroll in an arts degree. So I thought, hey, why not? It was a couple of weeks into the year, I enrolled in the arts degree and I, I then combined um, medicine with uh, mathematics and philosophy I did in arts and a little bit of history. Um, and the contrast with mathematics and applied mathematics and physics, which I did, was so astounding. And um, because I did applied mathematics, I think it's a really good sweet spot. You do a lot of maths, but it's all, you know, do a lot of fluid dynamics, uh, a bit of relativity. Um, and you always sort of start with the equations, Maxwell's equations, Navier-Stokes equations, these can be derived from the system that you're interesting, in, interested in. And then that, that model, which is um, a model of causes, uh, which captures all the physics, uh, is then used to sort of explain everything in that, in that system. So from fluid dynamics, you look at different solutions to the equations. You get turbulence or laminar flow or whirlpools. Um, and I just really love that way of looking at nature, basically. And then when I started looking in under the microscope and pathology, I was like, well, you know, it's the same sort of thing. Like you see sort of turbulent patterns of cells around a tumour and you see a dendrite growing in the way that it branches as it's going through the tissue. It's no different to the 
physical systems I was looking at in applied maths, really. Um, beautiful patterns. And there were some fantastic books I read, um, which looking back may be a bit naive, but a beautiful book called Catastrophe Theory by Renee Tom, Order Out of Chaos. And it was just this great time where people were saying, hey, we can apply nonlinear dynamics in particular to anything in the physical world, anything in the biological world. And yeah, I could really see it even down the microscope, looking at a tumour, looking at the progression, looking at the arrangement of cells. It's like, yeah, well, no one's looking at this with mathematics. And then, of course, I did neuroscience and I got really inspired by that. Uh, it was one of the biggest topics in, in, in medicine. And I ended up doing a, uh, a year off medicine to do an honours project in old-fashioned neuro physiology and histology and anatomy and it was the same thing I was doing mathematics at the same time and I could see absolutely no reason why seizures couldn't be seen as a bifurcation communication between cells or between different parts of the brain uh, could be looked at from synchronization dynamics all the great things that we're still doing but a little bit more as a field now yeah so that was that was it and and from mathematics I'm always always trying to arrive a model and always then look at the behavior of the model. And I think um, maybe what has been unique to my interest is being very close to systems and data and empirical evidence as well, and not getting too carried away with mathematical nuances. So yeah, no, it, it's actually, um, you know, it's funny, I read The Order Out of Chaos as well, uh, when I was younger, and, and I also loved, you know, I think we're both sort of similar ages. And so yeah, in the, in the 80s, there was the chaos theory that sort of uh, took hold and but but actually I, I really think that what what you're doing you know it, it seems that there's so much for instance it, it, you know in the human brain project and you know, all these these large projects uh you know a big part of brain mapping is just simply cataloging and it's it's not boring it's not mundane it's important but you know it's descriptive and uh you know a big part of fMRI has been descriptive and and to it seems to me that to really understand something you have to model it. Uh, so you can actually make predictions or understand principles by how it's organized. And uh, in physical systems, that's been going on for centuries. And uh, in, in, in neuroscience, people have been modeling, you know, single neuron firing. And, and now we're at this interesting stage where we have this data that we're, that's not at the single neuron level. And we're trying to sort of bring this, you know, we're trying to model it at the at one spatial and temporal scale or a number of ones that we can measure and potentially draw inferences and, and draw deep insights. Uh, ultimately, it would be nice to connect all the scales. Um, I mean, is that your perception as, as to where we might be at? I mean, I think that there are a number of people trying modeling. And and I just, you know, I had a nice podcast with, uh, with Danny Bassett. There's network models there's other types of models that you know are trying to make predictions and that's actually one of the questions i'll ask you so when you're thinking of modeling a, a system uh in neuroscience how are you choosing what to model and what's your goal as far as uh is it to, to reduce the dimensionality of the data or is it to, to derive a principle um, um look it's always a bit of a journey all the all the interesting projects i've done um and i think just to step back a bit i don't think there's any single privileged scale to model the brain uh whether it's the neuron you know quantum mechanics me mechanicists would say hey the neuron is already like the mean field right <laughs> uh, and, and then a collection of neurons or a circuit 
uh, and, and neural population or, or right up to the whole brain. Um, and an analogy might be when I worked at QMR Burkhofer, there's a lot of molecular biologists. And when they said mechanisms, I pretty soon learned that they meant molecules or at least molecular biology. And I'm like, well, I don't think there's uh, only mechanisms at that scale. When I say mechanisms, I mean, you know, understanding the system by having a good model of the system. And an analogy I, I used was imagine there's a problem with your car, right? You're going to go and it's it's not braking properly, right? You're going to go and look at the brake pads or, or I wouldn't look at the brake pads because I don't, I, I hardly know where they are. But but if it's a traffic jam and, and you look down and you, th- you see cars stopping and going and stopping and going, you're not going to look at the brake pads, right? You know, the cars, there's this great video, I think it's a Japanese demonstration, cars going around a circuit. You add just enough cars, you get these standing waves. You know, that's clearly the mechanisms are at the collective scale. Uh, And and to think that you're going to understand that by pulling apart the brake pads is is crazy. You're not going to understand anything about traffic jams by looking at brake pads. And I think it's the same thing with biological systems and particularly the brain. You know, so there's questions where you would look at molecules and ion channels and synapses and neurons. And there's questions where you would look at uh, circuits. And there's questions such as in our neonatal work, where you might look at the whole brain as a single system, like a traffic jam. Yeah. Like there's a traffic jam in the brain. I'm using a very big metaphor here. Um, and interestingly, then things can go down to small scales from what's happening at the large scales. You know, so if, if you're caught in a traffic jam, well, eventually brake pads are your your engine will heat up. And so here's a cause at the large scale causing problems at the small scale. And I think you see that in the brain as well. Yeah. In in all of the really fun, oh, and, and in physics, where I trained for a while at the University of Sydney with Peter Robinson, I learned there aren't formal mathematical techniques for putting things together, these things called mean field reductions, statistical physics. And there's a really cool technique called the renormalization theory, where you understand how all the different scales interact. So there are mathematical techniques, but um, for my biggest, funnest projects, and there might be about 10 or so of those, it's never been the case that I've come to a problem with a solution or an approach in mind. It's always been a great collaboration, often in the recent past, at least with, um, you know, bright, energetic, younger people. We sort of, yeah, we have a bit of a problem and we we pull it apart and we try different models and they, they don't work. Um, it's a really great process of discovery. And then you, you actually find something that the model that you were thinking you were going to use is completely broken or completely naive because yeah. of the way that it doesn't match the data of the system. Um, so we looked at these examples in epileptic seizures, in the human alpha rhythm, in our recent work on um, abnormal electrical activity in preterm neonates. Um, I'm sure Sure, there's a lot of other fun models I've worked on with people and not in a, it, it was really at least a year before we kind of started to understand how how what the models would look like and sometimes I mean we've kind of added terms to our equations in in a manner that I never even um, knew, knew of before huh. and then of course you go and look at the um literature and you find in another field yeah that's been done i was actually really surprised with our neonatal work to find we we, we had so most people add noise to the model and we found that that didn't work we we had to multiply them the terms in the model and the noise and i discovered oh economists do all of this all of the time <laughs> they're making money out of these models 
One of them said to me, oh, no, you don't do Ito calculus, you do Stratonovich calculus, otherwise you lose all your money. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah, so it's a great process of discovery, Peter, and I always learn a lot that I didn't even think of before we did the project. Yeah, I think um, what's really cool about what you're saying is that it's sort of like it's a way of actually testing, you know, your understanding of the data in a, in a little bit deeper way. And it seems that uh, the thing that anchors you is sort of behavior in some sense, or, you know, as far as yourself. I mean, it seems that ultimately you would like to not only model, you know, the or, or predict from basic principles like EEG signal dynamics or MEG signal dynamics and how that relates to the fMRI dynamics, but but ultimately it would be nice to come up with a way for predicting uh, uh, in a more precise way behavior in, uh, from from having very specific measures in the brain. Um, and it seems that uh, I mean, at least in psychiatry, we're at very early stages of you know. I think that your models are 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 beautiful in the sense that they you know they it seems like as, as far as my understanding of the process is. Is you put in you put in first principles you put in a very basic construct of the you know for instance whole brain architecture and then you determine you know you you see these wave propagations for instance uh, in in one of your your works and and you see you you say well this this sort of resembles what we what we see for instance with EEG or MEG and and then it sort of implies that that what components you're putting in are are what's actually going on that's the mechanism in some sense and I think I don't know if you want to add anything to that but but I think that that iteration I agree is is fundamentally important and I'm actually kind of surprised that more people aren't trying to do this I guess there's so much work to be done in just simply collecting the data as well as possible and trying trying to extract it as cleanly as possible, uh, whereas it seems like not many groups are actually trying to uh, understand the mechanisms. And when you say mechanism, when I say mechanism, I mean, you know, I, at some spatial scale, the mechanism uh, mm. to, to describe this. So, yeah, so I see a massive uptake of this in the field, though, compared to where the field was when I started, where the papers in this area were published in really interesting journals like biological cybernetics, but uh, certainly not in the major nature journals, et cetera. And, and now there's all these great people working and publishing in the top journals. And sometimes I get a bit of envy. I'm like, hey, what's going on? And it's great, you know. I've moved. I've got a lot of paperwork to do to set up my new group here. Yeah. And I'm seeing other people publish great work. So I think the, the use of models and, and, and mechanisms and ways of unifying different phenomena is moving forward. To get back to behaviour, I mean, yeah, a lot of our work was on sleep stages, uh, preterm EEG, resting state, epileptic seizures. There there are some great models of simple behaviours, and uh, one of my former postdocs, Turd Bunster, and I spent quite a bit of time looking at simple finger movements, and there's some lovely models about if you move between two targets, you kind of have two fixed points. But if you're told to do it faster and faster, you suddenly go through a bifurcation and you, you just start moving your finger in a limit cycle. It's quite a fundamental change in your behaviour and that you can model. And Scott Kelso and Vic Yerser and others have looked at that. And we found those signatures as well in corresponding brain activity. Yeah. Uh, a lot more needs to be done with behaviour, of course. In recently, I've been... Well, I've had a long-standing interest in the statistics of natural scenes, which are much deeper and more complicated, and we still don't really understand the statistical structure if you look out your window and you see houses and trees. Yeah. Um, and there's been some interesting work on that. And now, of course, naturalistic stimuli have become a big thing following the groundbreaking work of Yuri Hassan and others. 
We're showing movies and it's great to look at the brain in action. And um, a year or so ago, we, we looked at some of the deepest statistical structures in natural scenes, published that in a great journal called Neuroimage. <laughs> And looking in visual hierarchy, kind of we were manipulating the natural scene statistics and causing bifurcations and making the scenes freeze and all these things. And you really see profound differences in the way that activity then propagates through the visual system. Yes. And I want this to be, you know, the big thing for the next five years because visual perception or per- and also auditory perception of the natural world is massive. Yeah. And it seems, without being too surprised, that's what the brain is really tuned to do well, right? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Uh, um, it, 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 it is tuned to the statistics of the natural world. It's predicting them. It's manipulating the world to survive. And, of course, you need a good model of that, that world. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this, this sort of area and hoping to push our work more and more towards action and perception. Yeah, and it seems that the first stabs at, at doing that sort of thing, I mean, Jack Lant is also sort of, Pioneer it from one direction, though. So, you know, taking movies or taking uh, stories and sort of coming up with models, you know, almost by hand as, as to what to expect and pulling interesting information out. But I think that I think you're you're right. I mean, I think that would be much make much more sense to do the statistics of the scene to generate your regressors in some regard to, you know, because there's so many other things going on that we haven't probably even thought of in terms of how we're making sense of the scene. And if you can actually find, you know, dynamics that change as, you know, with regressors, you can pull out, it's like casting a wide net that's that's becoming increasingly precise in pulling out dynamic information in the brain. So I'm I'm completely with you on that. I, I'm, I'm all for rich naturalistic stimuli, but upfront, uh, maybe using, uh, you know, machine learning approaches to pull out that, that information to then use to inquire about what's going on in the brain. But, uh, which... Yeah, no, it seems that I agree. It's not only for visual, but even auditory, even, uh, you know, you can, you can have tasks and things like that as well going on. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm all, I'm completely with you on that. Yeah, and the eye movements we make, um, we did some work a few years ago where we, 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 we tracked eye movement. And then my postdoc, James Roberts, at the time, uh, reconstructed the movies from the perspective of where people were looking. And it's like, wow, is that how we look at the world? It's really <laughs> bizarre. Like it's, and, and then if you line up three people who are watching or watching um, a horror film, um, Here's John, Johnny, whatever it's called. Um, oh, The Shining. The Shining. And when the drama gets really intense, suddenly everyone's looking at the same thing. Yep. And um, you almost feel like you're inside the person's head, like being John Malkovich or something, when you're watching what they're looking at. And the little sideways saccades to a detail. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah, yeah. It was, it, 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 it's great. It's, and, and there's good statistical models of eye movement, um, which we've barely scratched the surface of. So there's just so much great work to be done. Right. I, I think that that's, that's a, a really rich area. I, I was just listening to some conferences in, in uh, neural models and things like that. And, and one of the interesting points that I, I kind of gleaned from this, I mean, thinking about resting state data, and this is a uh, slightly tangential. I mean, you also look at resting state and, and it's potentially interesting having a movie driving that is extremely advantageous 
for a processing standpoint and also from understanding uh, generating more better regressors and, and deriving more subtle actions. But, and I don't know what you think of this. I mean, but, but to me, every once in a while, I think of resting state and I think, oh, you know, it's, it's spontaneous uh, activation of these, these cascaded networks. Where do you think, I mean, and this is maybe uh, not something you've been working on or thinking about, but um, just, but I, the reason why I'm asking you is because, uh, you know, you did, you have been describing modeling all the way down to the, the action potential level. And do you, th I mean, and, and so there's, there's noise, there's spontaneity in the system at all the way up to the larger scales. And do you think that this spontaneity starts at the neuronal level where there's neuro spontaneous neural firing? Or do you think that in, in terms of even looking at oscillations, even at the larger scale, um, is the source of the variance, do you think that we can understand the source of these spontaneous state changes that occur? Uh, in dynamic resting state, does it does it come down? I mean, this is where maybe modeling might be helpful. And does it does it go back down to the neural level, or is it somehow at a larger scale that there's there's this randomness that that occurs? Yeah, it's a great question. And from a physics perspective, the resting state is very interesting because physicists are quite um, acquainted with looking at spontaneous emergent activity and I mean that's one of the things I'm really interested in climate science yeah uh, climate physics is really cool and they're absolutely doing so much great work in weather forecasting and climate forecasting and very sophisticated models which I sometimes use to predict how good the surf will be in two or three days yeah, um, yeah so you've got a complex system physical system you put in energy or noise, you drive it in, and you see these wonderful emergent states, large-scale, in the case of the weather, large-scale weather systems, you know, cyclones of thousands of kilometres diameter, um, all somehow organising the individual motion of these tiny little air molecules or oxygen molecules bumping into each other. And what's really interesting to me is if you compare a sunny day to a cyclone, if you really focus down on the molecules, you would not notice the difference. The difference between no, almost no wind and 100 kilometer hours of wind, if you're looking at that almost quantum scale, you won't see it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like a 1% difference in the variance. Interesting. And so that 1% of the difference in the variance adds up as you go to larger scales until you get these cyclonic winds. And I think that's one of the things I'm really interested in the brain is, yeah, there's always this thermal noise or at the level of the neuron, quantum states, clicking on ion channels open and closed. Um, but uh, that organises itself in very different ways across different states of arousal, across um, different sleep stages, which I find really interesting in our, in our neonatal work these abrupt state changes from active to quiet sleep or REM to deep sleep um, or waking up, you know, someone taps you and you suddenly wake up and there you are. Yeah. Um, these are the really cool state changes and the neurons haven't changed, uh, but the collective activity has really changed. Okay. Um, so I think all of that from a physics point of view is, yeah, this is a great example of that renormalization where, all the scales are causing everything, you know. There's not, there's not just the chattering of neurons. Um, and the, the way you can change the state with 
you know, like LSD, for example, and there's some interesting work now in uh, neuromodulation, pharmacological manipulation, like micro nanodoses of these monoamines, you get profound changes in the collective activity of the brain. So that's all really good. Um, From a resting state point of view, yeah, it's easy to do clinical work, but our group is really moving away just from resting state because even from a pragmatic point of view, uh, state, you know, individual differences are, you know, amplified in the presence of natural stimuli. Yeah. And this is work that you and Emily Finn did, for example, yep. and yep. Emily and, and Todd. So, um, yeah, individual differences seem stronger in the presence of natural stimuli. Yeah. And um, so from our memory studies in dementia, we're getting people to watch news clips and, and the first and second half and seeing massive differences. So I think from my perspective, resting state is a fantastic area, but most of our work is moving away from it. And I guess we leave, we leave a resting state acquisition because we want that international collaboration. And if we don't have resting state, it's hard to then pull across different studies in the same disorders. So we do usually have resting state in our studies, but um, I'm more interested in these days in in naturalistic stimuli where there's, uh, as you said before, some sort of manipulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that actually leads me, I totally agree with you. I think that in general, the field seems like it's moving a little bit away from resting state um, because there's so much more added benefits from, from having some some type of, not a task, but, a, but some sort of naturalistic sort of engagement uh, that you can understand. Um, so that sort of leads me to my, my next question along these lines. You know, as a psychiatrist, I mean, it, you know, I've always, my brother's a psychiatrist as well, and, and um, he's not a neuromodeler though, but, um, uh, and I always, I always feel like, and I obviously I work in, a, in, in National Institute of Mental Health, and, and I always feel that we're still at the stage where, um, Unlike you know cardiology or immunology, uh, we we don't understand. Uh, not only do we not understand, we we understand at some level the mechanisms of disorders, um, and but we you know we're still lacking tools for modulating. I mean, we have drugs, we have some behavioral modulation therapy, or or you know what is? I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are even on neuromodulation techniques, TMS that might be useful. Uh, so. How, I mean, as, as somebody who's trying to, to look at translation, how close are we in, in, with brain imaging and, and modeling and with our tools for neuromodulation to making a difference? Uh, I mean, I think you, you talked about pulling out individual differences and we can maybe diagnose people better, but how close are we to getting to the point where we do like a you know, neural stress test and, and then say, oh, well, we need to apply TMS here for a while and and there you go um or or something like that so yeah um it's a glass half full glass half empty (laughs) um yeah just to go back to what you how you introduced that question i mean in medicine when we did uh, renal physiology it had all been worked out yeah Uh, this great textbook Ganon's internal physiology Everything from the cells in the glomeruli and the cells in the carotid and how they all integrated. So same with the endocrinological system. And you you learn the basics and then you learn how the system breaks, hypertension, renal failure, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, we we don't have anything like that in clinical neuroscience. I mean, we have some heuristics, I would call them, 
um, and uh, we have some great treatments. Um, but uh, yeah, you go in to see a doctor because you're depressed in your mood and the doctor says, hey, you've got depression and here's an antidepressant. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of crazy. Gordon Parker pointed that out. You go into the doctor with breathlessness. The doctor says, you've got breathlessness disorder. Here's an anti-breathlessness medication. You're going to be like, I ain't going back to that doctor. <laughs> I've got asthma. Yeah. Uh, which is very different from um, emphysema, for example, and diabetes type 1 and type 2. Now, um, I think, and I like to believe, uh, but I might be kidding myself with some sort of internal bias, that with the tools of complexity science and the tools of physics and mathematics and this great collaboration with neuroimaging scientists and people of a more you know, computational psychiatry, et cetera, we are going to start heading in the right direction. Now, there's been a lot of false dawns in this field over the decades, so I'm cautious in saying this. Um, but I think we do have the tools now to the difference with the brain compared to the kidney. Well, the brain, the kidney didn't get me out of bed this morning and take me surfing. The brain did. It's <laughs> a lot more complicated, right? Right. But we've got tools for complexity now, and, and let's, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let's Let's stick to our goals of finding system mechanisms and systems processes and then understand how they break and try and pursue a diagnostic classification along those lines. Yeah. Um, what we've got in the meantime is fine. It's a very empirical trial and error approach. And, um, you know, I do see my patients getting better, you know, on antipsychotics if they've got psychotic symptoms. Yes. Yeah, so that's good. And I certainly see... In the meantime, some of the big breakthroughs coming through these sorts of stress tests, whether it's a cognitive stress test or a memory stress test, and then, um, or even using emotional naturalistic stimuli and being able to find, you know, I had a fantastic postdoc years ago, Christine Gao, who's gone into industry now. Um, and yeah, she showed with some of the data that we'd acquired, some people, more with a melancholic picture when they watch sad movies there was this disconnection of the subgenial acc the classic place where dbs was tried most other people know like yeah and they didn't present with these neurovegetative symptoms we call them you know early morning waking intrusive suicidal ideation and i i and we both christine and i thought yeah this is how we should go you know yeah. not just do a clinical interview but put people in the scanner and then say, oh, well, you know, there is a clinical trial for DBS in major depression or OCD, but we should pick people whose subgenial ACC looks disconnected before we put them in the trial. Yeah. Um, haven't quite realised that dream, but we've got a few grad applications in and Phil Mosley up in Brisbane, who was a PhD student of mine, is going down that, and Luca Cocky. So, yeah, that's a, that's a more realistic and achievable midpoint yeah. uh, the glass half full of this is yeah we're, we've got a lot of interesting work ahead of us I think my career stage I'm hoping just to hit my straps <laughs> uh, you and I in our in our youthful 50s uh, so yeah decades of work and great um, field for young people to come into from all different disciplines uh, we've had psychologists mathematicians 
um, you know, clinicians. Uh, we're looking at a great project with a PhD student of mine, Bjorn Berger, with exactly increasing cognitive conflict in young people with psychosis. And this seems to really pull out changes in gain control in the brain. So yeah, that's another good that's example. Cool. So, so right. I mean, we are, I mean, it, it is interesting too, because we are, as we make these better measures, as we, as we, as our models converge, as we, as we make more sophisticated models, we can have more sophisticated predictions. It's very iterative. And I, and I, and I don't sense it slowing down. In fact, like you, like you were saying, it's, you know, the glass half full, I, I feel like it's finally getting some momentum and, and, you know, you can start to say some specific things about people. And then I think it will just start to crystallize. That's my, I'm generally optimistic, but um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And, and yeah, it's, it's hard. Brain is a system, but it's, but behavior is complicated and, and the brain, you know, is across many different scales. And, and so, and we're just looking, you know, initially we're just looking for things that correlated, but, but having models gives you much more power as far as that's concerned. So I think that, um, I mean, what do you think that the future, I mean, it, let's say, let's say, let's, let's even speculate a little bit uh, before we shift gears into, into other topics, but um, what do you think the future looks like in terms of, you know, it, it, ideally, I mean, obviously it's impossible to predict, but you know, uh, as you're doing this work, um, making these measures, uh, trying to synthesize it into into sort of something that that has predictive value, and also as we look at all these neuromodulation methods, and I mean, do you see, uh, you know, in the next ten years, you know, I'd love fMRI to be clinically useful. I mean, as you know, deriving individual subject information that's better than uh, what other modalities can do. Um, where do you see, you know? this going and, and, and potentially in what way, uh, what do you think, where would you hedge your bets in terms of, Oh God, this is, uh... <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. I have to ask a tough question. Every once in a while. <laughs> no, it's a great question. Obviously big international consortia and data like human connectome project, UK biobank. And part of our work in the dementia space is also collaborating with people around Australia to do these big data sets. That's not really uh, unique to our work, so I won't dwell on that, but it would be impossible to look away from that. And I think a challenge for that is still finding the place of and the role of individual investigator-driven research, obviously sufficiently powered. Yep. Um, some of our work, I think, which is going to be clinically relevant, I hope so, you know, we're looking at clinical trials in dementia and new ones, and obviously a lot of them you need a PET scan to get into, and these are expensive and logistically challenging to organise, particularly in a re regional city like Newcastle. Um, what can we do beforehand? Um, how can we um, enrich people to be most suitable for a clinical trial? And this can start with online demographics, genetics, cognitive testing, in-person cognitive testing, structural and functional imaging, and combining the sort of modeling I do with uh, probably machine learning. Uh, I think there's going to be a role in five years for fMRI and all the other data modalities in selecting and recruiting people into different clinical trials. And I hope we get an outcome for dementia because I can't imagine that we can't for Alzheimer's. It's, it's not going to be a single, single magic bullet. I think we know it's not going to be anti-amyloid, probably anti-tau, but none of the big treatments in medicine are. They're all, you know, two or three different, like HIV treatment, you know, four different yeah. agents. 
So I do think there will be a clinical role uh, of fMRI in that space in helping predict and enrich people for a whole range of clinical trials. In terms of my work on modelling, most exciting applications are probably in epilepsy. Uh, We're getting really a a large number of groups, invasive electrophysiological recordings. We do a sort of human connectome-like assay on these people before they go to surgery. Then we get all the invasive electrophysiological recordings. And seizures really are the the easiest thing to model and where modeling has got the furthest. Um, I think there'll be a role for modeling in in a number of seizure applications. We're almost there. It could be tuning the sort of deep brain stimulation for seizures and tremors. It could be choosing where to put it. It might be minimizing the volume of brain tissue activated. It could be an early warning sign. Uh, Lots of applications for physics-based models of epileptic activity in that area. And, um, you know, Vigursa is working in that area and a number of other people are. Yeah, and I really hope our work on neonatal neurophysiology in in preempting, I don't use the word predicting, I use preempting later outcome, will be another great clinical application of biophysical and computational models. Yeah. And other people around the world will, will come at solutions in different ways, models of behaviour in schizophrenia, for example. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm confident that this will, be a, will continue to grow. So just the, your, your work on, on uh, I mean, in one of your papers you mentioned with epilepsy, and you mentioned that you, know, you could almost have a closed-loop sort of feedback to disrupt this, this epileptic, you know, uh, attractor state in some sense. Uh, so, and I was curious as when I read that, I thought, oh, what would what would be the closed loop? What would it be, uh, you know, you would you would have an EEG array and detect this, and then you would have some sort of either embedded electrode or something. Yeah, I think for these sorts of patients, and remember up to a third of patients with epilepsy don't respond well to pharmacological treatment. And even after successful surgery, up to a third of those patients get seizures return, there is going to be a role for deep brain stimulation in the correctly chosen area. And that will be both a recording and a stimulation electrode with a closed loop control system or disruption system attached to it. And I think a lot of groups are getting close to that. And not just in epilepsy, but also in seizures. We, I mean, Parkinson's disease and tremors. And maybe because there's some promising work in mental health disorders like severe obsessive compulsive disorder yeah. in the nucleus accumbens. And instead of just like zapping these areas with a whole lot of electricity, yep. we'll get away with much smaller stim- neurostimulation and much more targeted and tuned differently to different people. Um, you know, a great analogy was they built that beautiful bridge in London over the Thames River and um, they didn't realise when people started walking on it, then they would uh, do this stochastic resonance thing. Yep. Uh, and the bridge nearly collapsed. And then yeah. they were able to smart engineers re-engineer the bridge with just a few buffers to damp that particular resonance. So I think, you know, invasive neurostimulation. Uh, non-invasive, I don't know. Um, certainly TMS and, and um, DTDCS will, will have applications, but I'm not close enough to those to, to, be too, to sound too knowledgeable about them. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, yeah. I mean, it's certainly, there are people doing, trying that as well. I mean, and, and I agree with you. I think that having 
And I don't know how sophisticated, you know, in terms of network control theory, you can apply given the uncertain uh, characterizing of the networks, but it seems that you're close in some, in some areas of, of, of doing this. Right? So yeah, another interesting example is bipolar disorder, which I've worked on and researched quite a lot. And I treat patients with bipolar disorder and they're often, you know, really well, and then they're not, not well at all. And yeah. um, being able to, and, and, and in our brain connectomic work, we find um, changes in brain networks and changes in brain network controllability. This was actually a collaboration with Danny Bassett, who you've interviewed before. Yeah. Uh, and it makes sense. And these are even in the first degree relatives without bipolar disorder. Huh. Uh, and uh, wouldn't it be great to help work with those, with that population, those people, to be able to help them predict an upcoming mood episode um, or in their siblings, 10% um, will develop bipolar disorder. You know, it's a serious lifelong disorder with a high mortality rate, uh, but 90% don't, you know, and it would be great to use brain network theory. And uh, we do this embedded sensing where people have things on their phone to measure their behavior, connectivity, physical movement. Yeah. Uh, yeah I'm very hopeful and excited about breakthroughs in that area. Yeah. I think bipolar disorder, it is a disorder. It is a phenotype when you see it. Same with quite schizophrenia to some degree. Uh, but anyway, yeah, all these great areas to make differences to people's lives, which is going to be great. And it seems like that, I mean, it really does seem that this is the place where the most traction can be made. I mean, it seems that, uh, uh, right, certainly people are doing drug development, but it still seems that this is sort of like we're getting a handle on a little bit on mechanisms and, and, and better measures and and uh, a little bit more fine delineation of the therapy. So so that's that's great. Uh, and, and certainly I could, you know, we could talk for hours about your work, but I want to shift gears a little bit and just, you know, uh, give get an update on on, on neuroimage as you know, we're, we were both editors and we, I, you know, I was editor in chief and then and then you took it over and have been doing incredibly well with it. And I feel a little bit, um, not really guilty, but I feel like when I got out, uh, there were some additional challenges uh, in the field that sort of came in, you know, the open access uh, issues and things like that, that you had to take on, you know, full on and, and deal with. And uh, it seems like you've, you've done a great job. So I don't know if you wanted to describe how, you know, what were the, what you changed, what challenges you had to deal with? I mean, how much you, you really, I mean, there's only so much one can do uh, changing the, the whole culture of Elsevier, but at the same time, uh, you've, you've had to do a lot. So, so. yeah, well, um, thanks, Peter. Um, <laughs> The journal was in very good um, health because the field is doing very well. And I always see your image and human brain mapping, our partner in crime, so to speak, as being healthy because the field is healthy and good journals because it's a great community and OHBM behind them and other journals. Uh, one thing I'll say as well as background is a lot of the editors at your image, and it's a great internal community you know, the handling editors and particularly the senior editors. It's a great um, forum, very healthy, robust discussions, very collegial. You know, it, it's healthy and it engages in the community in a very unique way. And 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 um, because of the internal dynamics and the relationship to the field, I think it's going to continue to be a great journal in a great field. Now, in terms of just stepping back from the publication model, yeah, I think we've continued 
It's a big journal. I don't think people realise it's a crazy busy journal, 3,000 papers a year. I mean, you and I know because we see all the papers that come in. Uh, you go offline and then you, for a day, once every year, and you come online and want, log on and there's 31 papers, beautiful work of yeah. our friends and colleagues or colleagues, which we know as scientists ourselves, each one is precious and reflects a lot of work. And I think that's unique about science-run journals is the scientists value the work in every paper. So some of the things that we've done, obviously, we've launched more um, specific paper types, the toolbox papers, in which you must share code for it to be evaluated, um, rather than mandating that on all papers in a lot of the times that the software may not be the foreground. But in NeuroImage, we have a lot of methods papers, and I think breaking into those toolbox papers and, and giving the reviewers the opportunity to run and test the code and having editors that are really good at that, I think that's been great. All of this comes from consensus and discussions with all the senior editors and the handling editors. Yep. Um, we just launched data resource papers. So you don't need to do a scientific project, but you can. Uh, you need to have acquired quite a lot of a cohort uh, and, and describe that to the community. It needs to be re reasonably novel. And the data, the data needs to be um, open access. So you need to be able to share the data with the community. Once again, not every paper in your image can the authors do that. It might be clinical data. There might be prohibitive ethics behind prohibiting that. But if the paper is to communicate the data, the data needs to be in the public domain. So those sorts of papers are good. Um, That's great. Uh, what else have we done before we get to the big question? Oh, we ask every paper to have a software and data availability statement and it, it can't be the data will be shared upon reasonable request i mean what does that mean you know we want people to say uh the data will be shared under a shared funding agreement blah 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 or the data can't be shared because of the ethics ethics restrictions and we're not going to prohibit publication of those papers right. uh yeah obviously the big thing when i when when i came in was this um open access movement, which, which we all embrace. All of us editors at the senior level have worked and do work with other journals, many in the open access domain. I've, I've been an editor of eLife. I personally see Your Image as a wonderful journal with a great legacy, with a great engagement with the community. And, um, you know, as editor-in-chief, I thought my role was to uh, preserve the legacy of the journal, perhaps like Captain Ahab on Moby Dick going down with the boat. I wasn't going to jump off at all. That wasn't my job. Have to put you, you know, as you know, sometimes you, 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 these are complex issues with no single perspective and you need to then step into the role that you're doing. And as editor-in-chief, my role was to be editor-in-chief. We had a lot of discussions. And if you look at the senior editorial team, you see there's um, independent, strong-minded, um, great scientists. So we had Zoom meetings. We, we explored every option. We did yeah. explore the so-called nuclear option. Um, we, we, we thought about um, there are downsides to open access. You know, it's pay to publish and, and that's expensive for labs and that's right. become more apparent. Yeah. Right. There's a real... We yeah. Try to get free waivers, but the business model is not our role as editors. Well, we don't have control over it. It's the publisher's domain. At the end of the day, the subscription model was becoming untenable. That was clear. Yeah. So, yeah, we just asked the publisher to flip it to open access. Um, we didn't have control over the, over the price. And 
it, it definitely was the right decision. Uh, I can tell you there was threads of 70, 80 emails. Um, you know, everybody had their say, but uh, it was the right decision, not universally popular because there's a cost of publishing and that's uh, harder on small labs and it's harder on people in uh, less wealthy or less well-funded nations. And, I, 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 you know, we all have a lot of friends in those places. Yeah. You know, obviously, if you're in a really impoverished country, you can publish for free because all the publishers have these fee waivers. But if you look at those countries, you know, these are really, really impoverished. You don't see neuroimaging research coming from them anyway. Right. Uh, I think the reason why it was the right decision is the journal has ploughed on. It's very healthy, a lot of great science, and the heat and the energy and the, the existential crisis, and it was an existential crisis, it has, has more or less been resolved. Something else will come along. Um, people said, uh, maybe we should all go and join another journal, but I know how hard it is to run journals. Yeah. And you and I also know that publishers bring a lot to the, a lot to the, um, <laughs> to the table. There's, uh, you know, a lot of experience in the publishers that we work with over many journals. There's ethical advice. You know, we get plagiarism. We get authorship disputes. We get all sorts of issues on a journal with 3,000 papers scientists aren't trained in that you know and at that level it does become a, a collaboration you know collaboration with publishers and sometimes with lawyers and with scientists as, as, as smart as we all are uh, we're not trained in publishing ethics or business models yes. but at the same time well you and I and and colleagues and friends started um, Aperture with RHBM a different model and I know a lot of the other journal, um, uh, you know, a lot of the editorial team have worked at eLife, PNAS, which has a slightly hybrid model. Yeah, so pragmatists, yeah, I, I, I didn't think it was a good, it would have been a good model. And I don't think that many people really did to, to, to somehow, you know, try, can go completely from scratch. You can, you know, right. science moves in big waves. Yeah. And um, you have to build capacity in a new paradigm. Yeah. Sometimes while the old paradigm is still going and, and who knows in the publication landscape, it's very diverse. And I think the diversity is quite healthy. Uh, the business models. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I guess enough of all of that. The other thing we have done and continue to do is be very mindful of diversity in the editorial team. You know, I think we're not there yet across the whole thing, but, you know, for years now, the new editor editors have, have you know, been of, of a diverse background. And that's not hard work because there's, pe there's people from all backgrounds and all, all diversities in the field doing wonderful work. Yeah. So, um, you, you know, at some point it becomes pretty easy, although, you know, there's still challenges and barriers to be addressed. Yeah. Um, and we've published this great paper um, from RHBM on the diversity white paper, and we're constantly, you know, discussing it, considering it. I think it's, it's, it's very different from 15, 20 years ago, even though we're not there yet. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that, that's actually a really great, I mean, it's a wide, good summary. And and definitely, you know, right, open access, just my own thoughts on that. It's, it's, it seems that it's always makes sense to, you look down the line and it looks inevitable uh, in, in, in terms of, of how things are generally going. And, uh, and right, there's always pushback from either, either young labs that don't have money or other, and, and certainly there can always be adjustments, but, but I think that was the right decision as well. 
Um, well, yeah, the other thing to complete that model is the subscription model dies. Labs must be availed of the savings yes. from institutes and libraries because a lot of the librarians drove open access. Yeah. So in these critical years, subscriptions will go down and the labs, that money must be available to the labs to publish. So effectively, the labs are publishing for free. Yeah. And I think that um, falls onto everybody to argue with their institute and their funding bodies. And in some places, it's done a lot better than others. I think at the Max Planck and Welcome, the labs don't see the um, publication costs. Interesting. Um, and we're fighting a battle here in Australia to do the same. Yeah, like with with grants, your overhead costs might go to the library to buy to, to get the subscription or or whatever, and then instead of having it go there, it should go to you to publish the papers. It seems. I mean, it seems like the you know the money should it shouldn't be a, a, a net loss. It should just be redistribution. Of, yeah, of the money. but not necessarily from funding bodies like NIH or NHMRC because those it's got to come from the institutes that are making the savings. Yes, from the libraries and others, because otherwise. Suddenly, even if labs get more money for those costs, we're cutting into the same size pie with suddenly the extra costs of public publishing. I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. So it's got to come from the savings and the subscription dial. Yeah, right. and it's great because I've sat on grant panels, and let's face it, don't tell anybody, but you want to read the papers and you're on the panel, and sometimes you have to use this portal called Sci-Hub because you need to read the papers that the grants are based on. Yeah. I never said that, of course, but this is what the open access model does, that you can quickly avail yourselves of papers yes. if you're evaluating them on a panel or in many other contexts. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely it definitely this model makes much more sense. And it also, I mean, are you, is NeuroImage, I mean, still publishing hard copies or is that, is it going? Uh, uh, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't, I don't see any hard copies. I yeah. hope not. No <laughs> reading them. Yeah, I remember I used to get that. sent a, you know, a two inch thick, uh, you know, journal every, every two weeks. And, and, uh, but now, right. I mean, that's, that's, we'll go the, by the wayside as well. It's all digital. Oh, the other thing is um, NeuroImage reports. Yes. So NeuroImage became NeuroImage NeuroImage Clinical, which is a fun, fantastic journal with Hartwig Siebner at the, at the helm now. And then, um, you know, NeuroImage Reports, which partly comes from the publisher, not from us necessarily, although I think there's a great scope there. And Bert Forstman and Mike Cohen are the dual EICs there. Huh. Um, it's a lower publication cost. Um, one of the things, just to pick one of the things that we're doing um, that's just about to be launched is if you review a great paper, a neuroimage or neuroimage clinical, and the data is open access, and you write a detailed technical report, why not turn that reviewer report into a replication report and actually get the data and do some of the analysis and check that it replicates? Interesting. And if you do that, you can publish that for free in neuroimage reports. Huh. It's a new paper type, uh, open data replication report. And it's published for free and it's free open access in your image reports. So just to rehearse it again, you review a paper, the data is available, uh, you write a great review. You don't have to have reviewed it. You can do this with any paper. Yeah. It's a bit like Nico Krikus Cric is open, open review reports. Yes. Uh, but you, you must replicate a core part of the paper. You can go beyond it, you can, but you must replicate or endeavour to replicate the central findings using your own analysis machinery. 
not using not using the um, Python libraries that the publisher the authors have put because of course it's going to be it's going to be photocopying. You take the data and you subject it to your own pipelines and you you publish the contrast or whatever it is that the author's published and you can qualitatively and quantitatively compare. You might want to redo the analysis to show how much more meaningful it is in a Bayesian framework, and you can do that. Oh, that's really cool. I like so that. So you have a, a brief introduction about the context. Uh, you, you use the same data. You, you use the same methods, but your own pipeline yeah. And, um, you know, it's still going to go through an editorial and some sort of peer review process, uh, but it's not going to be judged for novelty. And, um, you know, it needs to be rewritten in a collegial spirit, even, even if there's disparities between the published, published fun findings and the replication report. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you can publish that for free in your image reports. And you can do it with any journal, uh, but I don't think you'll get uh, the fee waiver if it's not from a new image journal okay so people listening to this podcast get get amongst it <laughs> that's great and, and is that the primary paper of, of uh, neuro image reports i mean is that the mechanism or is there other other types that they accept you can do registered reports uh you can do any uh, uh replication study um, you can do any study that isn't somehow sexy enough for your image, novelty, innovation. Yeah, these are thresholds we look at at your image. Um, we want papers to be innovative, to be fresh, to give new insights. Um, you know, we all know now that um, there's, you know, even our own, you know, our own work, I shouldn't say even, we have many studies that aren't somehow sexy in yeah. the, ultimately this subjective. So if it's a good Technically um, sophisticated report, um, neuroimage reports may be your, your journal. It still has to be very high quality science. Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. Um, yeah, no, and, and it's a it's 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 a nice sort of way of 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 further enhancing, you know, addressing the issue of replicability or reproducibility of of, of findings in general. So it's I like it. I like I like how it can scale and you know, engaging the community to try to do these things and publish them. So that's awesome. That's a great idea. Uh, I, I didn't even know about it. So that's, that's, I'll definitely talk to my lab about it as well. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll be trying to promote it through Twitter and other, other venues over the next couple of weeks to months. Okay, so um, so now for the, the, the last topic, um, and I noticed on Twitter and, and there was some, uh, a lot of uproar uh, in Australia uh, with the, Apparently, and you could probably describe it better than I can by far. Uh, the Australian National University, you know, it's tight for money. It's it's doesn't know what to do, so it just cuts their neuroscience program. Um, and and now there's a, a large uproar into in terms of you know they're saying, well, this is the least uh, the, the the least bad thing we could do. Yeah. In, in general, people are a little bit upset about that. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, very upset. I'm very shocked. Upset. I mean, Eccles Institute of Neuroscience, I know some of the scientists there doing groundbreaking, world-class work, publishing in top journals. What in the heck is going on? And also cognitive sciences at Macquarie University and many other programs. But the Eccles Institute seems to be the canary in the coal mine because this is gobsmacking and a lot of positions being, being cut. A bit of background. First of all, there Funding in Australia is tough for discovery research, which the Eccles Institute, I guess, does, and has moved to translational research. 
Uh, which is good, you know, but we don't have fundamental knowledge of everything yet. So we need to do discovery research. Look at, um, you know, the Pfizer vaccine, microRNA vaccine. I mean, this comes from molecular biology in the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah. And it's the best vaccine that we have, apparently, better than the AstraZeneca, I'm told. I don't know all the details. Let's keep going with discovery research. So I think they looked at this institute probably wrongly for being uh, too discovery focused and not therefore getting into this larger new translational research money. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing translational research. I mean, I'm a doctor. I mean, for goodness sake, my, my research is on patients and I haven't got a lot of money from these medical research future fund. I don't think I've got any. So uh, it ain't a gold mine. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the backgrounds. And um, yeah, I do think it's shocking. And there are world-class scientists and there's early career researchers and PhD students whose lives are thrown into complete turmoil um, at, in many indices, Australia's premier university, not the largest, but on some indices of excellence. So it is astonishing. Yeah. The other background, um, which I've tried not to be quick, but when I was at university, they were big public institutes, federally funded. In the last 20 years, for better or for worse, it's become a business export industry with a lot of international students. Now, we've always welcomed international students. And um, when I was a junior doctor tutoring medical students, we had wonderful international students. Um, yeah, you, you've got to keep the standards high. You don't want to become degree factories for the world. This is the downside, business-led, whether it's international or domestic. And you see that math departments being pressured to pass students. Otherwise, the maths will go to a more vocational college, blah, blah, blah. But here we are, 2021. It's now a $10 billion earning uh, economy, the third, second largest after coal mining or after ore, iron ore before coal mining. Uh, it's got a sustainable future. Then comes along the coronavirus, but I think things were happening already. There's a sudden drop in the in revenue, uh, but thanks to science, you know, it's going to go away and we'll be back to business as usual pretty soon. Um, I can't for the life of me understand given it's such a successful, economically viable institute. You know, progressives love universities because of the generation of knowledge. I guess conservatives and neoliberals love it from the economic point of view. What is going on? And at some point, I find out people have signed off on all these cuts. So there's two models. You excise whole departments and leave others alone. Or you go through and you slice off, you know, grants offices or postdocs or lecturers all across the board. And that's the more common model. Yeah. And I think both are appalling. Yeah. And I must say, I'm very upset. And so are quite a lot of us that somehow this has just been enacted. And, you know, people and friends are losing jobs. People at the end of their careers are suddenly like, okay, time, time to retire. Well, they didn't, you know, they're, they're at the top of their field. I'm, I'm very upset about it, actually, and I feel I feel mystified why it's happening because I don't think it makes sense when all the students come back in two or three years. The higher your international ranking, the more money you make. It's like that. Yeah. It's a linear. It's it's a linear regression. And secondly, yeah. uh, why are there protests? Fifteen percent of the whole of sector. I mean, if we were organised, if we were at the waterfront. Uh, there'd be strikes, there'd be newspaper, there is some press now. So I'm disheartened and a little bit demoralised about it. 
Because I, I, I don't think either model is the right way. I think the right way is to go back and say to the federal government, to the Minister for Education, for the Minister of Health, for the Minister exactly. of Science, hang on. Like, we're, we're, we've got all the students coming back next year. Here are the numbers. JobKeeper was very successful in Australia. We've done very well with the pandemic. As you probably know, com comparatively, I mean, we're COVID-free for months now, more or less. Two people come out with it and the whole city shuts down and then a week later, everyone's back back together. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> um, economically, we've done well. There's no reason for it. And, right. and I don't understand it. And, and I'm in the process of trying to see how I can best most constructively help stop the madness. Yeah, I mean, it seems like from my, at least from my perspective, it seems that, yeah, whenever you have cuts like that, it seems like people lose, are, are somewhere at the upper levels, they've lost faith in the long-term investment of this sort of thing, as opposed, I mean, because they could always redistribute funds and 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 just hold out because they, they understand uh, the long-term investment. But yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Australia came perilously close to having a vaccine for the coronavirus. In fact, it worked and it was a good one and it was developed at the University of Queensland from basic discovery science. The only problem is it caused false positives on HIV serology. Didn't cause HIV, just caused false positives on the tests. And they decided, you know, because of the contested public issue around vaccines, they'd stop it. Otherwise, yeah, we, we would probably have developed a vaccine that would be worth billions of dollars. Yeah. Where, you know, CSIRO developed the Wi-Fi. You know, IVF came from Australia. These, these are massive discoveries. Yes. Just to finish on this point, I once went to Japan and I had this very interesting time at a faraway institute somewhere. And when they privatised the telecommunications, they had a lot of money that they put into research and development. And this one institute, they funded it. They said, OK, get great people to go there all around the world. Physicists and mathematicians and others went there. And you don't really have to have KPIs. Just do what you want. At the end of it, they came out and they said, oh, we have a new random number generator, which is based on quantum mechanics, which helps with secure communication. And we believe it's worth about $200 billion. <laughs> I might be embellishing the numbers here, but it was massive outcome. Yeah. Breakthrough that probably everybody doing secure communication is using. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, things like that that are just purely open-ended yeah no it's a, i mean it's a huge it's always paid off that's what people i mean in, in things like this right i mean we're we're you know they used to have you know bell labs used to have like a, a center that allowed open-ended research and and it and it really is i mean it's so funny because it really is always it seems in the short run like oh what are you doing um but really the long-term investment is always comes through even though you don't know exactly what's going to happen what what is going to happen it always yeah. seems to do that. Um, and yeah, that and I mean, hard. another example would be dementia. I read somewhere if we delay dementia by two years or something, we fund the entire medical research sector with the savings. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, and it's a huge cost, personal and societal and economic for dementia. And uh, there's a great space for discovery research because we don't understand the mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, even things like that, right? I mean, it, right, it seems like there needs to be a better... Maybe, you know, the people at these levels need to be sold on the idea that it's an investment in the long term and that things come out of it. And it's hard to predict, but still things come out <laughs> mm. inevitably for the last 
you know, millennia. I mean, <laughs> or at least 200 years. I mean, things have come out. So yeah, otherwise we'd be putting mentally ill people in asylums, right? And um, you know, treating fevers with leeches or something. Yeah, uh, it's astonishing. And we certainly can't and don't want to let other people around the world to do the science. In Australia, we're having a problem with the vaccine supply. I mean, this is a good example where, you know, innovation and productivity and translational research at home is really important because yeah. everybody wants the vaccine and it's hard to get it. Amazing how great the vaccine rollout is going in the United States. Yeah, so- no, I, I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's a very nonlinear sort of thing. It starts out slowly and we were all worried that's going to take us, you know, 10 years. And then finally, it's, it's now at the point where I think within a couple of weeks, everyone's going to be eligible and we can just go in. I, I got my first dose and I'm going to get my second dose next week. So we'll see what happens. But uh, I haven't had a dose and I'm seeing high risk patients in the clinic. And, and we've just discovered that we're not going to give the AstraZeneca virus, uh, sorry, vaccine to people under 50. Anyway, we digress. Yeah. Yeah. But still, I mean, it's still, I mean, there's, that's, that, that's, a, that's what we've all been thinking about for the past year. <laughs> <laughs> It's um, great to see the return and thirst for research and development in the United States. All of us out in the peripheries are going, you know, <laughs> I, as you said in the introduction, I spent a year in the United States. It was just wonderful. I spent a year training in London as well, another wonderful place to go. And yeah, the United States has been a huge and inspiring hub for innovation. So it's great to see it's great to see it back. I know you guys were continuing to do great science, but leadership matters. Yeah, yeah, leadership matters. And and luckily, at least uh, as far as, uh, you know, the NIH is concerned, it's sort of a, you know, everyone, everyone understands that this is a good thing. And and uh, uh, even bipartisan, it seems like it, it, there's a buffer. Even, you know, there's, it, it seems like from, that's one of the only things that's bipartisan that from both sides are like, okay, that's that's a good idea to keep, funding the NIH and keep funding other types of research as well. So it's even accelerating. So that's, that is great. That is good. And I, we're very, very happy with that. But yeah. And we have had some good schemes in Australia. We have had good discovery streams and good initiatives in dementia um, and, and great funding in discovery science. We've, we've, it's been fantastic. I don't want to diminish what governments have done. Um, yeah. it just, and it's paid dividends. So um but it's always a fight. You're always always fighting for long term. Yeah, it, it is always a fight to 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 convince people of of the benefit of something, even though when you don't have the you know like oh this will lead to this, this will lead to this, and you know you don't have that clear logical progression all the time. Sometimes people don't understand the process. It's it, it's interesting. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, and definitely Australia. Uh, uh, well, hopefully they'll. You know, I don't know how set in stone this sort of thing is, but um, hope it, you know, either gets reversed or fixed. Uh, yeah, well, a lot of times, is- yeah, a lot of times with these things, there's usually a, a you know, a sort of a pendulum swings the other way a little bit more strongly when something like this happens. People are rallied, yeah, and they realize this and they push it. So, well, I certainly hope we save the Eccles Institute. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of these cuts are going to be hard to stop. Uh, but uh, you know, it is a it is a wave of downturn, and we'll see it. We'll see research and, and innovation funding return. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we have some great industry collaborations as well. Um, but industry want to see security in their partnerships. You know, they go into a, a collaboration with uh, academics. They want to make sure the contracts are going to be honoured, 
and um, I guess they're a bit nervous. We have great partnerships with Siemens. We've worked with Philips. We work with Medel. Yeah, these are fun. Got no problems with industry partnerships, but we also need, um, you know, public funding and a commitment to public education. You said at the beginning, um, yeah, we're on a Wabakal country here. We're we're on a, a part of the Aboriginal uh, nation called the Wabakal country. We've got Waramai just up the up the road. Newcastle University, University of Newcastle's got good engagement with Indigenous people, as you know, whom have terrible health problems and challenges. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very, very proud to be working in an institute that um, embraces that. We have a strong responsibility uh, in Australia to, to work and engage with Indigenous partners, Aboriginal people, and we're doing that in Newcastle. I'm very, very passionate about that and, um, you know, obviously in collaboration. So this is the other good thing about, um, you know, the academic sector. It's not yeah. all about research. It's also about training. It's also about health outcomes. Yep. And it's about culture, you know. The humanities as well are, are leading the way. So there's so much to be gained here. And that's that's actually right. Exactly. There's a there's the outreach part, which you know generally, you know, engaging engaging the the culture, engaging the people, and and in a very positive way. I mean, you know, science is generally positive. <laughs> uh, it's it's about being creative. It's about trying things. It's about innovating. And so, uh, it, it's certainly. You know, not only does it produce things, but it actually, I think, gives people optimism in that regard. So, and also, you know, it's also a, a source of cross-cultural and, and cross-country collaboration. I, you know, it's amazing being in science in the first place where, where you know, you have good friends all over the world and you're, you're united by this, by this uh, you know, by the science. And, and, and that's, that's, I think that's, hasn't been fully appreciated either. So, mm. yeah. Um, well, we've been, I've been to China, have collaborations there. I've had lots of students from China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Hong Kong um, come and do fantastic collaborations in my group. And, um, you know, I was in India at a, at a, at a meeting um, and I met a very bright student who's now in my group, Shrey. And um, yeah, well, cool. you, you and I, you know, we've been, I've been to Cuba, you know, there's, there's no barriers there. There's yeah. just a quest for knowledge. And, you, you know, we need to do better because... The problems with diversity and um, the hashtag me too extends into science and we need to do better and listen yeah but I'm more hopeful that I'm, and I don't want to speak for others here but I'm more hopeful that that will happen in science than in some other areas although industry some parts of industry are doing well yeah yeah, yeah. but when we collaborate when we work in, in a diverse world we we do our best work well thank you yeah that on that note let's uh yeah i think that this has been a wide-ranging discussion and yeah. uh and i think that it's uh i've had a lot of fun this is this is great i mean and i think that the, the hopefully something good will come of it as far as the last part of the discussion with uh, with funding um who knows who listens to this podcast but hopefully the right people and so, all right, well, well, thank you. Thank you very much uh, uh, for joining the podcast and spending so much time. And, uh, you know, I look forward to finally, you know, after COVID's finally done to coming down to Australia and visiting and collaborating and, and uh, or even at, at any of the OHBM meetings that are coming up. Uh, hopefully everything will be back in person, but we've learned a lot from the uh, you know, having virtual meetings, hopefully it'll be a hybrid to open it up for other people who can't travel. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well.
Okay, well, thank you very much, Peter. And uh, it's been a pleasure. We should have more of these conversations. Yeah, we should. We should. We should. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's one thing about Zoom. It's like, it, I remember when we first tried talking in the context of something with neuroimage a while ago, it was with, you know, Skype or something, and it was a little bit, you know, a little bit messy. Now that now it's become very smooth, and it, and it just kind of works. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to catching up hopefully at our HBM in 2022. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, well, well thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. All right. Thanks. Thank